Anand Masalam, uh, welcome, Your Excellencies, uh, distinguished guests, ladies and gentlemen, uh, welcome and again, thank you, Richard and uh, Russell, if you're here, show us your hand, uh, Smith at uh, Wilkie Farm, your fine staff, uh, for your continued support and partnership with the National Council on U.S. Arab Relations in making today's uh, event uh, possible. You've managed to turn this conference room used for litigation matters into uh, a configuration that is intimate and fitting for a briefing event on a topic like energy that is not understood uh, and more than often misconstrued by media, national leaders, opinion leaders, and agenda tanks. Uh, despite this, our annually, the United States is consuming about 25% of global energy production. This is a fact that is not Democratic, Republican, or partisan. Oil, in particular, is fungible, finite, and depletable, and an international commodity whose ownership is determined by market forces once it leaves the producing nation. Access to this finite and depletable resource by the world's sole superpower has baffled the minds and shapes U.S. interests domestically and internationally. Moreover, access and continued unrestricted flow of this commodity to the world's energy market is at crossroads is at the crossroads of U.S. military and foreign policy. Domestic American developments in U.S. oil and gas production with the unlocking of toy oil and shale gas resources has the United States in position to be, and I quote the International Energy Agency, a net oil exporter around 2030. According to the United Nations, Arab countries at the moment hold more proven oil reserves than any other region, comprising more than 43% of the world's total proven reserves, and Arab countries produce nearly a third of the world's energy supply. Recently, Saudi Arabia's oil minister, His Excellency Ali Naimi, stated, and I quote, the human populations wants and needs more energy. And he adds, I don't think anyone should fear new supplies when set against increasing global demand. Inherent in this are challenges both domestically and internationally. Let me stop here and turn the program over to three specialists who are not newcomers or latecomers to the topic of rhetoric and reality in Arab-U.S. energy relations. Their biographies are on the back page of your flyer. Welcome again to John Hoffmeister, former president of Shell Oil Company, Professor Paul Sullivan, professor of economics at the National Defense University and adjunct professor of security studies and science, technology and international affairs at Georgetown University. And of course, our own board member, Ms. Rhonda Fami Hudom, uh, board member at the National Council of, on U.S. Arab Relations and president of her own company, Fami Hudom International and former Deputy Associate Secretary of Energy during the Bush George W. Administration. In keeping with tradition and decorum, all questions will be conveyed at the end of the speaker's presentations via paper or note cards and collected by our staff and delivered to the podium. We hope you enjoy today's program. John Hoffmeister. Thank you, Pat, and good afternoon, everyone. It's a delight to be here again. My theme is a question for which I will imply the answer. 
because there are still a few uncertainties. The question is, given the current situation in the Middle East, given as the his Excellency now Naimi said, the demand for energy in the future, given the future of supplies from various and sundry places, are OPEC's days numbered? It's a rather important question, particularly if you're a member of OPEC. OPEC, as seen by this observer, by me, is in a very difficult place globally for several reasons. The so-called, what I would call, bad actors are becoming less and less functional, meaning more and more dysfunctional. Putting countries like Venezuela, Iran, Libya, Syria, and a few others close to the level of dysfunction of those countries while other primary members, larger producers, such as Saudi Arabia and Kuwait, recognize with the maturity and wisdom of the years and the quality of their relationships around the world and the functionality of their respective sovereign nations, can see what's happening around the world with respect to perceptions of OPEC. But enter something that OPEC never planned, never knew, but has become a reality with which it must cope. The emergence of the demand for energy from China and the manner in which that energy is being supplied to China, which is, if anything, unilateralism at its best. And what I mean by that is China's voracious demand for oil which was at around 5 million barrels a day in 2005, 10 million barrels a day in 2011, and most likely will be right at or above 15 million barrels a day by 2015, only a few years from now. China is not going to take the course that in its own self-interest is a rocky road or perilous or worrisome or insecure. Instead, China is using a remarkable brand of unilateralism to make sure its oil supplies are met. And the approach is cash for oil, with the mechanism being contractual loans to state-owned oil companies, which happen to include OPEC members. And that total is now up about to $150 billion of loans to state-owned oil companies where the guarantee of repayment is oil. Venezuela is into it to about $40 billion. Nigeria, 20. Kazakhstan, 20. Brazil, 3. And on and on. Because China cannot stand the vagaries, the volatility, the unpredictability of the global trading market. Two things are happening in the U.S., as I see it, to shift to the other side of the world that should be of great interest to OPEC. One, U.S. domestic energy production and the possibilities of so much more 
far more than has been discussed at any level, as best I can tell, in Washington, D.C., among policymakers who pay attention. I'll come back to that in a moment. But secondly, a dynamic which is also not well reported, but which I sense in virtually every city I visit, at every engagement I participate in, which is an animosity and a hostility deep within the American citizen with respect to what OPEC is viewed as having done to this country, particularly in the last five years, which is a view that the rapid run-up in the price of oil, remember, it was only 12 years ago that we thought oil was so plentiful that we were in an oil age where some of the major oil companies actually geared themselves, meaning set up their financial business models, for low-priced oil as far as the eye could see. I happen to have been a part of one of those companies. Because the $10 oil shock of 1998 deeply penetrated the future business thinking and no one could imagine that a decade later, actually seven or eight years later, we would start to see the run-up that we've seen. And within the psyche, within the <clears throat> consciousness of the everyday American, many have figured out that it's not really going to solve the problem to blame the oil companies for the price of oil, because they're simply producing it. But there's a growing consciousness that the price of oil is set by the supply-demand artificial constraint set by an international cartel. And it's not sitting well. Because there is no other explanation for the run-up in the price of oil other than the artificial demand-supply relationship of the cartel. The consequence of China and the U.S. going in, frankly, their own directions led in the case of China, largely unled in the case of the U.S. Because the emergence of new domestic production in this country is the happenstance of largely state-based activities that are happening with the support of local residents, landowners, granting mineral rights, and state permitting authorities allowing the permits to go forward, where the companies, from small independent operators to large international uh, super majors, are participating in an explosion of new energy production that current employees of the companies simply cannot recall which is quite saying something. The U.S., for example, has gone from production levels of 2007 at 5 million barrels a day and will reach 7 million barrels a day this year. On a percentage basis, that's a 40% increase. That's huge in five short years. Natural gas has gone from about 64 million million BCF, 64 BCF, billion cubic feet a day, to 70 billion cubic feet a day, 
in a few short years. To the point that natural gas is as inexpensive as it's ever been. And the rest of the economy benefits from that. And there's frankly more where that came from, more than we actually know. And while the Energy Information Agency attempts to keep after a, re a reliable statistic on the reserves, I submit by the time they publish a reserve number, it's already out of date. Because the size of the formations that are being accessed with shale, shale geology and with the technology advances of hydraulic fracturing and horizontal drilling, there really is no known limit yet to either what's accessible or what's producible. But the reserve numbers are huge. Some 2,200 trillion cubic feet at the last EIA report, and I submit that's out of date. The opportunity for the U.S. to directly <clears throat> impact OPEC is with the evolution of natural gas as a transportation fuel. We are at the beginnings of the conversation, for all practical purposes, of what natural gas as a transportation fuel could mean to the future of mobility in this country. And you can think of natural gas as a transportation fuel in at least four dimensions, four different products, given the flexibility of the molecules and the technology of the production processes. You can think about liquefied natural gas, which is cooling the gaseous form of natural gas to a liquid that's 60 to 1 ratio in size. So in other words, you are shrinking natural gas to 1 60th of its natural uh, transmittable size from a volume standpoint, and you can take it anywhere. And as long as you keep it cold, it stays as a liquid. And the way you begin to use it is let it warm up. And it converts naturally to a gaseous form where it can then be deployed in an internal combustion engine of one sort or another. So you could imagine the future of train freight hauling in this country, or passenger for that matter, in which instead of a coal car, trailing behind a steam engine, if you go back in history, or instead of enormous diesel tanks hanging off the bottom of a locomotive, you instead have an LNG tank car behind the engine or engines. And those, that LNG tank car or cars are providing all the natural gas needed for interstate train travel, possibly even cross-continental train travel because of the availability of LNG. LNG can also be used for trucking, and in fact there are two major, uh, as of today, two major truck stop operators that have announced the transcontinental build-out of liquefied natural gas for trucking at their truck stops. You might say, well, where will they get the liquefied natural gas? Two sources. A number of companies are committing to make liquefied natural gas for transportation fuel. And the technology has advanced so rapidly in the production of liquefied natural gas at small scale, 
not the big two, three billion dollar gasification plants that are often talked about or built for exporting liquefied natural gas from country to country, but rather much smaller scale liquefaction plants that can be built, frankly, on a truck stop's footprint to keep that truck stop supplied with liquefied natural gas. And building those on a cross-country basis, you have the manufacturing or the, the liquefaction facility right there where the trucks stop. And the only thing they need is a pipeline of natural gas to keep it going, which most of them already have. And so if you build out liquefied natural gas for transportation, you can also build out compressed natural gas, the second form. Compressed natural gas for trucking is already in existence. In fact, the buses of Washington, D.C. advertise the fact that there are many of them are compressed natural gas buses. When you have a hub and spoke system of transportation, like a waste management process or public transportation, or a hub of freight delivery vehicles like UPS or FedEx, where you can have your own compressed natural gas supply system, it makes perfect sense. And if you look at what Cummins are doing and Caterpillar and other truck manufacturers, they're clearly setting up the capability to expand with natural gas vehicles. I haven't mentioned personal cars. That's next. Natural gas can make methanol or can be made into methanol and today we do it already. We use a lot of methanol in this economy made from natural gas. It wholesales at a dollar a gallon. Expand that capability and put flex fuel engines in vehicles and whether it's ethanol or methanol the engine won't know the difference. We're capped on ethanol. Despite political aspirations and political ambitions to the contrary we will not achieve the level of ethanol from either advanced biomass or, plant or food, corn, in the way in which people might have envisioned even five years ago. The biochemistry is simply not there. And because the biochemistry is slow, the advanced biofuels aren't being developed at scale. And so the oil companies are now being basically fined for not delivering enough ethanol to the markets as they are required to do under the 2007 <coughs> energy bill and the EPA is fining them for product that cannot exist. Only in Washington can we have such public policy that fines manufacturers for product that can't be created. But fining they are and guess who pays the fines? Thank you very much consumer, you're paying the fines for product that can't be developed. Politicians unwilling to acknowledge the facts of life, but the advanced biofuels are years behind where the law says they should be. But legislators cannot tell the biochemical reactions that take place with biomass what to do. There is no rule of law in natural science other than natural law. And man-made law doesn't work. But methanol is an alternative it's the same basic alcohol fuel, slightly different chemically, uh, and methanol can be produced at scale. We know how to do that. Natural gas is the feedstock. I submit 
that at 100 billion cubic feet a day, instead of 70, we could displace 5 million barrels a day of imported oil. A direct slice out of OPEC production that would no longer be necessary in the world of tomorrow. It sets up a competition for fuel. Today, oil is a monopoly when it comes to sourcing fuel for vehicles, for transportation, all but a monopoly. Batteries have hardly penetrated as a competitor. But if you introduce natural gas as a competitor to oil, you have suddenly turned the table on the U.S. dependence on imports to the tune of five million barrels a day, which is about two-thirds of what we currently import. An amazing, amazing numerical turnaround. And at a time when higher fuel efficiency engines are going to and have already decreased demand. So you can imagine a day in the not too distant future, should we embrace natural gas as a transportation fuel, in which there are frankly no needed imports beyond what Canada and Mexico could supply to the U.S. market. We demand about 18.5 million barrels a day, and we could produce 16.5 to 17 with, decrease, with increased efficiency and the substitution of natural gas, which leaves us a gap of one to one and a half million barrels a day. We would have little or no reason to pay any heed whatsoever to exporters from outside North America. That would have a major impact on how OPEC operates in the future. It's not that the world will not meet, need more oil, and it's not that OPEC, as independent nations producing oil, would not need to produce oil. But what is the need for solidarity? What is the need for the cartel versus the need for optimizing unilateralism if you're a sovereign nation trying to have oil relationships with importing countries, such as China? Although China could also go the route of methanol in vehicles. China already has the policy advantage that all cars built or sold in China are flex fuel engines. Because China has anticipated natural gas as a transportation fuel already. And China has at least as much natural gas as the United States. Although it hasn't cracked the code on how to do waterless fracking which both countries are working on, by the way. Waterless fracking suddenly opens up in dry climates a huge opportunity for natural gas production not dependent upon water. So when I say OPEC's days are numbered, and you look at the divided nature of the nations who are part of the cartel, those who are the wisest, those who are the most forward-thinking, those who don't fear the future of supplies from elsewhere, as expressed by His Excellency Al-Naimi, they'll be fine as nations. They will have customer relationships with those whom they wish to serve, because the world will, de will demand all the oil that can be produced. But this notion of hanging together with dysfunctional nations and trying to put a pretty face on it I think those days are all but numbered. I haven't picked a year yet, 
but I think it's an inevitable conclusion that OPEC will have outlived its usefulness for its inability to be appropriately functional. While some of the countries are, some won't be or can't be or simply choose not to be. And so the consequence for the American economy, the Chinese economy, the two largest in the world, I think are all the more positive because they will not face the crippling effect of an artificially set price on a major ingredient to sustain their economic growth and development. And the faster either of the two countries moves, the more competitive advantage it will obtain. My biggest worry in this whole evolutionary process is that the U.S., with its unfortunately dysfunctional political leadership and the lack of the grasp of energy fundamentals among those who lead politically this country, they're out of step, out of knowledge, and are not supporting the process that could be the energy or the economic stimulus that drives this nation in the 21st century. We are ignoring a massive economic development opportunity by not proactively, as China is, attacking the energy future in ways that are self driven by self-sufficiency. And it's not that difficult. Meanwhile, the energy companies are going about it regardless of the federal position, learning quickly how to operate with the states in ways that benefit the states. And so now we have an ex some extraordinary pockets of prosperity in this country that is suffering still the ill effects, <coughs> particularly in the densest, most populated parts of the country, East Coast, Upper Midwest, and West Coast, where the middle of the country, as many other people have said, is growing phenomenal. And states like North Dakota, Arkansas, Alabama, Texas, Colorado, Wyoming, they're not looking back. They're moving on. And Ohio and Pennsylvania are joining the ranks, while New York State stutters and ponders and pays more attention to the expertise of Yoko Ono and her crowd <laughs> than it does to the people who know what they're doing <laughs> in the neighboring states. And so it's sad to watch that kind of dysfunction exist, where Washington can't get its act together. Individual states opt in or opt out at their choice. California is next on the bubble. California has a big decision to make with regard to fracking in the Monterey, or the Monterey geological uh, region because of the opportunity for oil and natural gas in, in California. And knowing the hostility toward hydrocarbons in the state, uh, nobody's seeing this as an easy decision by the state of California. But a state like California, which borders or toys with bankruptcy, or New York, which isn't far away from California from a financial analysis standpoint, for them to ignore this opportunity is at their own peril. And so I think there are trends underway, ladies and gentlemen, that aren't being written about, but should be studied very closely. And the demise of OPEC in terms of setting the price of energy, when OPEC faces the natural competition of natural gas, which is everywhere, including the Middle East, 
but all over the world, vast amounts of natural gas, with the technology to release it and the technology to convert it to transportation fuels. And the fourth dimension, which I didn't mention, and I'll close on this note, you actually can take natural gas through additional processing right to gasoline. A plant designed to do just that was announced in western Pennsylvania in the past 30 days. So whether it's methanol or whether it's straight to gasoline, all of the price points of the output of LNG, CNG, methanol from natural gas, gasoline from natural gas, all of the price points from an American consumer's point of view beat $94 a day, or $94 a barrel, which is OPEC's roughly current price. Thanks for listening. Thank you, Mr. Hoffmeister. At this point in time, uh, Dr. Sullivan. Good afternoon. Seems Mr. Hoffmeister and I are on the same page on so many things. That I have to start wondering. <laughs> Uh, particularly with regard to, uh, oh, first of all, I, I have to say something about these are my opinions alone and do not represent those of the U.S. government or any other institution I may be part of. Yeah, you have to okay. speak real close to you. Okay. That's better. Uh, so now I can get myself into a significant amount of trouble without actually connecting it with the government. Uh, his comments on the, the uh, federal government's view toward the massive changes in energy are right on target. There is a significant amount of dysfunctionality in this city, particularly within the interagency process. Again, these are my opinions alone, but I'm part of the system. I see it happening all the time. There's clearly a dysfunction in the uh, budgeting system of the country, even though the first budget in the last four years was sort of passed recently. The real change in policies going forward in this country are at the state level, not at the federal level. That's where the really creative ideas are coming from. And some of the states that he mentioned are where these things are happening. Massive change has happened in the energy business. And unsurprisingly, many people in this city don't have a clue that it's happening. People think inertially, particularly when most of their effort goes to strategizing for their next career rather than trying to figure out what's best for the country. And everyone in this room knows what I'm talking about. Yes, massive change. And, and when I teach my students and advise uh, people at uh, fairly high levels about energy and they bring out the forecast charts from various organizations, I tell them to cut off anything that goes further than three weeks from now. Those forecasts are always a straight line. Reality is not in a straight line. It's like this. It's all over the place. And I often ask my students and others, what's the oil price going to be in three weeks? We have a game in some of my classes about that. And it's amazing how things can change so quickly. What I've been teaching, what I've been advising over the last five years has changed at least 20 times. 
You have to keep up with the situation. In order to keep up with the energy situation globally, and that's kind of my perspective on this stuff, it's 24-7. And some people in this room know that sometimes they get emails from me or respond to them at 5 o'clock in the morning. That's pretty much when my day starts. I find it exciting. I find it challenging. I find this an amazing time in energy and also an amazing time in U.S.-Arab relations. Now I'm going to go quickly through U.S.-Arab energy relations, some of the aspects I've been working on. Uh, the importance of the shale oil revolution and how we're supplanting oil from many countries, not just Arab oil imports. The only Arab oil import that's pretty much locked in is that from Saudi Arabia because of the Motiva refinery in Texas pretty much part of the contract with the Saudis. Otherwise, our imports from just about every other Arab country have been declining since the shale oil revolution has happened, since the recession has occurred, and since we finally got around to building more efficient vehicles. But there's a lot more to be done. The shale gas revolution, much of what Mr. Hoffmeister mentioned, is pushing out some of the imports of Arab oil as well as Arab natural gas. If you take a look at the numbers for our imports from Algeria, it's pretty much nil. From Egypt, it's nil, but there are other reasons behind that, including their own dysfunctional government. And our imports from many of the GCC states have been in serious decline. The only countries' imports that have remained are Qatar's. And the reason behind that? They're selling the gas to us for $3 per million BTU, and it costs them five to six to liquefy it and transport it to us. They're taking a loss to export this stuff to us. The same natural gas that they send toward Asia, they're selling at $19. This is the same stuff, sometimes in the same ship that landed at one of our ports a month ago. Natural gas markets in the world are pretty mixed up. Eventually, these natural gas markets will become one. It's a matter of time. It's a matter of infrastructure. It's a matter of getting rid of the scam, and I'll say this again, the scam of oil-indexed natural gas pricing. This is an absurdity. In the past, Oil and gas prices moved like this. Since the shale gas revolution, they've gone in different directions, except in the places where the long-term contracts have connected synthetically natural gas prices to oil prices. This is a scam. The Australians are building LNG facilities like gangbusters. The Canadians, I was up at Calgary about 10 days ago, they're going to be building LNG facilities they have massive shale gas reserves. We will eventually get around to building our LNG export facilities, or probably the first thing to happen is we'll switch our import facilities to an export facility. But again, the government is so behind the curve on this thing, they are clueless about how important it is for us to move quickly on this. I told the Canadians, if you don't move within the next two to five years, just forget it. Absolutely forget it, because the Australians will be online, the Russians have pipelines going into China, they're going to have a pipeline system going in other parts of Asia, they're building an LNG facility in Vladivostok, they have one on Sakhalin. There's absolutely no way in this big chess game, 
those companies that live in dysfunctionally political environments with regard to energy that they can compete. Can you compete against Gazprom, which is essentially the Russian government, and controls 85% of the gas reserves in Russia, when you're sitting back and wondering whether you should export natural gas? This is utter nonsense, excuse me. And by the way, we've been exporting natural gas for a long time, from Alaska to Japan, we're exporting it to Brazil, we're exporting it by pipeline to Canada and Mexico. We've been doing this for a long time. It's hardly a new concept. Another aspect of this is the concept of virtual energy. A question I've been running into over the last couple of weeks. For some reason, this question keeps on coming up. Because of the shale gas and shale oil revolutions, will the United States leave the Middle East? Hmm. I wonder. Now think of the following. China imports about 80% of its oil and gas from the Middle East. Japan, similar numbers. India, similar numbers. Taiwan, similar numbers. South Korea, similar numbers. Any product or service that we import from Asian countries is essentially a virtual import of Arab oil and gas. So we have considerable interests in making sure that the situation with regard to Arab oil and gas remains as stable as possible. Our major trading partners in Europe also rely on Arab oil and gas. Take a look at the importance of Algeria for the southern European states. <coughs> Very important. So virtual energy, this is a concept uh, I've been developing over some time and I think it's a fairly important one because it's a lot like virtual water, think of it this way, when you import an apple from New Zealand and every time I see a New Zealand apple in a Qatari store, I'm just gonna, what? What is going on here? I, I had my 10-year-old in a supermarket in uh, Doha a couple of years ago and I said, guess where this apple's from? And she said, Washington State? <laughs> possibly different times of the year you do that. But this is Qatar importing oil because Qatar has two days of oil left over if their desalinization facilities go up. Two days. UAE has two days. And every single major Saudi Arabian city relies on desalinization. It's another reason why I have virtual water imports to that part of the world. But guess where the biggest dairy in the region is? In Saudi Arabia, okay. It's subsidized, it makes no sense. Virtual water could resolve this by importing water from elsewhere. But everything that we buy from another country contains virtual water, virtual energy, and actually virtual intellectual property. It's all part of it. Take a look at all those computers we import from China, all that plastic. Where do you think the oil came from to produce that plastic? More than likely, Saudi Arabia and UAE. So the next time you look at a Cherry computer uh, tablet or whatever, an iPod or an iPad or a Toyota, look at it and say, wow, that's a lot of Arab oil and gas. <laughs> How many people would think of it that way? <clears throat> Frankly, everyone should think of it that way. They could not be doing this. If the Straits of Ramuz are cut off, the people who are going to get hit the hardest initially will be the Chinese, the Japanese, the South Koreans, and the Indians. Not us. We don't import that much from that part of the world. 
We import possibly from the entire Arab world 22 to 25 percent of all of our imports of oil, and our imports of oil are in decline. And these are net imports. But when people talk about imports of oil, they focus on, okay, number one is Canada. That's correct. But we also export refined product to Canada. You net that out. We export coke to Canada. We refine that. We take that out. Mexico, about half the oil we import from Mexico, we send right back to them in the form of refined product. So actually, they're not number two. Then you just go down the list. It's net imports that are key. Another aspect of net imports, just to add into the engineering viewpoint that Mr. Hoffmeister started, the inputs to the refining process volumetrically are less than the outputs because of something called refinery gain. That kind of throws the numbers off. Some of the experts that I run into in this city, put that in quotes, don't have a clue what net imports are, nor do they care what they are, but it's a massive part of this whole problem. You would be amazed, or maybe some of you would not be amazed, at the lack of knowledge, not only of the Arab world, but also of energy systems, energy technologies, energy markets on the part of the people who are supposed to be in charge. A lot of U.S. investments in Europe and in Asia are beholden to the Arab oil markets. And they're not even in this country. Our major source of overseas investment for the Europeans our major host of overseas investment are the Europeans. Anything happens with Arab oil markets, we're going to be the losers as well as they. Arab investments in U.S. energy systems could be a lot larger. Look at Motiva Refiner and a few other investments, that's smaller. I think we could work on this and that way we can connect each other closer. U.S. investments in the Arab world I was trying to find the numbers, U.S. investments in the Arab energy industry. And I contacted all kinds of people, the Department of Energy, the EIA, the Congressional Research Service, the State Department, you name it. Nobody has the numbers. <coughs> they said, okay, you're going to have to figure it out yourself by contacting your companies, meaning the U.S. companies, and asking them what their investments are. And that was to prepare for this talk and I knew about this talk, was it three weeks ago? This would take at least three years to put together. <laughs> so the people who are actually making the decisions about these investments don't have the numbers. <clears throat> Remember my caveats, please, my opinions alone. But obviously there are lots of companies involved with this. And if you want to see a list of them, not the numbers of the investments, the Arab and Oil and Gas Annual has a list of all the U.S. companies involved in every single country. And there are a lot of them. And this is a very important part of our relationship. Not only that, a lot of the money that's invested by U.S. corporations and Arab energy systems comes back here. They get the knowledge, the infrastructure, and other things, but our consultants and companies make money along the way. That's one of the myths. So it's supposed to be about myths. One of the myths is, we get all of our oil from the Arabs, and they're really being nasty to us. Well, both sides are wrong on that one. It's very complicated. We get most of our oil from the Canadians, and we're really good buddies with the Canadians. 
the tightest relationship that we have. Okay, we also educate a lot of Arab energy leaders. That's another part of our relationship. I've run into so many managers, engineers, and mathematicians, and physicists, and chemists, and Arab oil companies who have been educated in this country. This is important for our relations with the Arabs. People spend some time in the country, hopefully they meet some really nice Americans, and they learn the best of this country. Keep them out of New York City and they'll be a lot better off. <laughs> but yes, it's amazing the connections we have there. Take a look at Saudi Aramco, figure out how many PhDs and MAs come out of this country. The idea that we held back from certain visas for education to many Arab students for some time harmed us. Harmed us considerably. I met soon after the events of 2001 with some Saudi business leaders. They had all been educated in the United States. And they were fretting about where their children might be educated and they wanted them to come here. There's a lot more to this than just importing oil. Then there's the military side. The military side is a significant proportion of our defense budget and other budgets go toward protecting sea lanes of communication, oil pipelines, and other networks. This is, in many occasions, a joint venture. It's very expensive. This is another part of the U.S.-Arab energy relationship which hardly is ever written up of in its factual, practical sense in this country or just about anywhere else. There are diplomatic sides to this as well. Energy contracts are often private company to private company, but the help of the State Department and our embassies can make a big difference. If you saw Chinese companies, French companies, and German companies rolling into the Arab world and other places where gas and oil is exported from, you would see their foreign affairs ministers, their military people, their private sector people coming in as a crowd. For some reason, we're not as good at that as we should be. And this could make a big difference, a very big difference. Arab-U.S. oil relations should stress relations, because that will help us in the future when these energy changes put stress on those relations. And the energy changes that Mr. Hoffmeister talked about, turning to natural gas cars, <coughs> gas to liquids technology, that. Uh, process in Pennsylvania also exists in Qatar, as he should well know because his former company started the thing with the Qataris. Uh, you can turn coal to diesel fuel. Uh, you can drive just about anything with natural gas. You can actually drive an aircraft with natural gas. The technological, economic, and other changes that are going to happen in the energy industry in the next few years will be stunning. And those who are not keeping up with it, might as well retire early because this is going to knock companies off the block. It's going to throw off a lot of policymakers. 
People are thinking about energy systems the way they thought about energy systems one year ago are already wrong. There's also the intelligence side. I think we all know about that to some degree, and let's not go too much into that. That's an important aspect of this whole business as well. Anti-terrorism and so forth, the protection of pipelines, the protection of facilities like Upcake. Upcake, a sweetening facility in Saudi Arabia, if that's ever taken out by the bad guys. How does $250 to $300 a barrel of oil sound to you? What I tell my students is if they ever get in, and Al-Qaeda got into the first fence, they ever get in the second time, and that's Al-Qaeda's modus operandi, try and try and try again, I'm going to invest in a bicycle company. And if you want to see CNG and natural gas vehicles come on very quickly, if there's a war against Iran, the implications of that war, of the scenarios, and I've run through some of these with some of leadership and others, absolutely devastating. Forget about the bicycle company either. Frankly, most people don't have an idea where this thing might end up. Four minutes from Iran to Saudi Arabia by missile, and the other way around. And there's enough oil and oil facilities and oil transport zones to cause trouble for a long time to come. Whenever I hear someone arguing in this city for an attack on Iran, yeah, they're doing the wrong stuff. Yeah, they might be up to other things with strategic ambiguity. Yes, there could be a missile program and so forth and so forth. You think of the cost benefits of your strategic thinking if there was any. Now, there are also effects on financial markets from all this because there's a lot of money flowing into the Arab world. And a lot of that money lands in this country. Well over $300 billion in our treasury bills are owned by oil exporting countries, mostly from the Gulf. A lot of Gulf investors invest in our stock markets, invest in our companies, either directly or indirectly, invest even in our infrastructure. This is another part of that relationship. And last but not least, we have to consider the cyber relationship. I know many of you probably thought that we'd be talking about the myth of we're importing all the oil and the gas and the average the Arabs have us under their thumb economically and all this stuff. That was a long time ago. And as a matter of fact, it was not only a long time ago, it never happened. We have to work together on these issues. There was a cyber attack on Saudi Aramco. There have been cyber attacks on many US oil companies, many Arab oil companies. We have to work together on this issue. If there is a significant cyber attack that gets into the computer system of transporting oil or natural gas, there could be significant problems because most of this stuff is transported by SCADA systems essentially centrally controlled systems of transport run by computers that monitor things. Natural gas, oil, electricity, you name it, it's via that. The cyber issue is a serious one. Now, as Pat and some others in the room know, I could probably talk about this stuff for the next three hours, uh, 10 hours, 10 years, and not take a break. Many times when I'm in meetings, I don't take breaks after three and a half hours. 
at Georgetown and NDU, my students have to take me aside sometimes and say, Doctor, please, we need a break. So I'll stop here and please ask questions. Of course, we're going to ask the questions after, after our next speaker, uh, Rhonda Hamidoudon, uh, board member at the National Council on U.S. Air Relations. Rhonda. Thanks, Patrick. Um, and it's good to see Russell Smith again. We practiced together, I won't tell you how many years ago, at Wilkie Farr Gallagher. And thank you, Richard, for those kind comments. You're right, I did get my start here at Wilkie Farm, my legal start. And I think one thing that never changes is the portrait of Wendell Wilkie, who was the founder of this law firm. Many of you may not know the history, but he was the Republican presidential candidate in 1940, ran against Roosevelt, and he lost, obviously, but then Roosevelt recruited him to be sort of an ambassador at large. And he was quite well known for his international thinking. And so that's only appropriate that he's watching over us today as we talk about U.S.-Arab energy relations. Um, one of the wonderful skills I learned here at Wilkie Farm is how to think as a lawyer. And as a lawyer, some of you heard, have heard me say this before, I think in outlines. So today as we talk about this topic, I've got three main points in my outline. And the first is rhetoric versus reality. But somehow the rhetoric around not only Washington, but around America, I do a lot of speaking on this topic, that foreign policy in the Arab world only hinges on our energy relationship. That somehow, if we become independent from the Arab world on energy issues, we won't have to deal with them anymore. Leave them by themselves, they can fight it out. The truth of the matter is that's not true. Many of you who are here that are experts in the energy sector know that. For instance, one of the largest cooperations between the United States and the Arab world comes in the defense sector. Why? Yes, primarily for the protection of those natural resources, but it's certainly beyond that in light of what's going on in the world today, including the threat of Iran. That defense cooperation has increased tenfold. Take a look at what's going on right now with sequester and how that's affecting particularly the defense contractors in this area. And I would beg to differ and say the one thing that's going to keep the U.S. defense industry afloat is the purchases in the Arab world, not only by Saudi Arabia, but by the UAE as well. Another area where we cooperate heavily is certainly trade. And you can see the figures of the large amount of trade that's going on between the Arab world and the United States on a variety of products, not just on natural resource products. And last but not least, the importance of peace issues. And that, of course, we drill down to Israel and Palestine, which really don't have a lot to do with the energy issues. But somehow the United States, for years and years and years, has found it our responsibility to try and make peace between the Israelis and Palestinians. And ironically now, we find ourselves in a situation where Secretary Kerry is hearkening and honing in on the Arab Peace Initiative, which was something put forward by King Abdullah in Saudi Arabia back in 2002. The United States is now going back to that as the basis of trying to get Israel and Palestine together. So the reality is our foreign policy with respect to the Arab world here in the United States goes beyond energy. Second Roman numeral, that somehow this is a zero-sum game, that the United States' independence from the Arab world means us 100, them zero. And I'm here to tell you that the reality is 
that OPEC is investing heavily in renewable energy. Ha, ah, who would have thought? So the rhetoric on the US side is we gotta get independent from oil from the Arab world. It's okay, we produce our own, but we gotta stay independent. We gotta amp up our renewable energies and then somehow we will get away from them. The reality is not that. The reality is, despite the rhetoric by president and Congress about, I think we talked about that, how evil OPEC is. In fact, I kind of chuckle, every Congress, like clockwork, mm -hmm. there is a piece of legislation called NOPEC. Many of you may be familiar with it. It's called the No Oil Producing and Exporting Countries Act. And many senators and congressmen get together, they co-sponsor identical legislation in the House and Senate, which would like to subject OPEC member countries for violation of antitrust laws in the United States. Now, as you can imagine, there's a lot of problems with that, primarily our relationship with that region. The administration usually always steps in and says, back off, stupid idea, but hey, it's great stuff for the constituents back home. It always, always causes people to rise to their feet and clap. And there was even one situation recently um, where a lawyer named Larry Clayman, who's a, um, uh, what I would call very conservative lawyer here at one of the, I think you called it an agenda tank, who decided that he was gonna personally sue OPEC. So because Congress couldn't get the job done, he traips over to Vienna and tried to you know, serve OPEC at their headquarters. Little does he know there's a law in Vienna that basically says you can't serve OPEC. So the service of process was basically null and void. That being said, it doesn't stop people from trying to push this issue. So let's talk about what OPEC is actually doing, both in the renewable energy field and something, Paul, that you mentioned as well, which is the joint investment field. On renewable energy, again, many of you may have heard me talk about this before, but it's worth repeating. Saudi Arabia, for instance, first solar, a Colorado company of solar energy, is making huge investments in Saudi Arabia. Saudi Arabia has brought them in to do a tremendous amount on solar energy. Saudi Arabia also, of course, and Saudi Aramco, um, are the founders and sponsors of what's called KAUST, the King Abdullah University for Science and Technology, whose basic mission is to develop and implement renewable energy technologies, not only in Saudi Arabia, but around the world. I just returned from Morocco and Tunisia. I've never seen a more aggressive program on solar energy than I have seen there. They are moving as fast as they possibly can. By the way, the solar energy companies <clears throat> from all over the world. Everybody knows about the famous UAE 123 agreement, which allowed the United Arab Emirates to move forward on building 13 new nuclear reactor power plants. And nuclear falls under renewable energy. And of course, many, many uh, renewable energy projects in Qatar, uh, but I'm primarily interested in an investment conference they have every year where they bring together investors and renewable technology, sort of new companies, and try to marry them together, see what might come out of that. Now it's interesting, on the integration level of investment, there are two particular projects that I think are worth mentioning, particularly when we're talking about, and I think we've had a lot of discussion about the shale gas boom here in the United States. It's been reported that Qatar Petroleum is considering investing in either a US or a Canadian shale upstream assets. Primarily, 
as a price hedge for their planned investment with ExxonMobil to convert the Golden Pass LNG import terminal near Port Arthur, Texas to an export terminal. It's also been reported, and this is all public, that Kuwait, through its RF energy holding company, has invested in U.S. shale asset management. So what I'm saying is rather than being a zero-sum game, this should be a win-win game. I'm hoping that people look more, more at it as that. Finally, I just want to say as my third Roman numeral, and I'm probably one of the very few people you will hear say this here in Washington, but I was kind of skeptical when the International Energy Agency came out with the report. You would have thought we had another earthquake here or a hurricane, that the U.S. will surpass Saudi Arabia by 2020 as the number one oil producer in the world. <clears throat> I am highly skeptical. Not that I don't want us to. I'm just very skeptical. The reason is what they are basing that prediction on are incredible variables. Paul, you talked a little bit about that too. The variables are certainly the shale oil boom, where that is going, the increase in renewable energy, how does that figure into it, where our regulatory environment is going. If you can tell me who's going to be president in 2016 and 2020, give me a million bucks because nobody knows that. Nobody knows what the regulatory environment is going to look like here in the United States at that time. Also, whatever we produce here with respect, there's been all this talk about shale gas, whatever we produce isn't going to be near enough what the consumption is going to be globally. And it might be prohibitively cost expensive if we're not able to move that industry forward. And perhaps the way we're going to move it forward is through investments, and perhaps those investments are going to come from the Arab world. So I'll end my comments here by just saying, as somebody who used to make policy, I don't anymore, but if I were there today, what I would urge my fellow policymakers, both in the administration and Congress, to say is to think about the relationship between the United States and Arab world in the energy sector, but more broadly, as one of cooperation and perhaps healthy competition but not one of adversaries, because that would be, cooperation would be better for the United States and better for the world market as a whole. Thank you very much. Thank you, Rhonda. And uh, ladies and gentlemen, this is the time uh, that if you have any questions, we would uh, we'd like to take them. I know we, we have very limited time in terms of the speaker's uh, schedule and commitment. We have about 20 minutes. So uh, if you have a question, just raise your hand and somebody from our staff uh, will, will collect it or I will uh, come around and, and collect it. Uh, I do have uh, two questions here that have already been given to me. Uh, uh, question is, uh, and we're going to share the mic here, so I'm going to ask the question and uh, give you the mic and if somebody wants to comment on it, please, please so indicate. Uh, can OPEC uh, and other foreign producers of oil and gas count on U.S. environmental and NIMBY opposition to production in U.S. via fracking and shale oil development. How will that contest play out? And another question here, comment about Egypt and their fuel situation. I don't know who wants to take the first one. I will, yeah. Um, well, I think with respect to the fracking and the shale oil, 
Um, again, I'm just going to use as an example um, the pipeline um, that the president uh, that's coming from Canada, it's escaping me right now, um, Keystone. Keystone Pipeline, right? Mm -hmm. Keystone Pipeline. Okay, this is a good example. Uh, during the first Obama administration, there was talk and discussion of the Keystone Pipeline. And as we got closer to the election, the president felt the pressure by environmental groups, and so he backed off. And the Keystone Pipeline did not go forward. Immediately after the election, we had some discussions, negotiations through what path it was going to go through in Nebraska and the Sand Hills and whatnot. And now there's a lot more of an uplift or an approval that's probably coming down the pike on the Keystone Pipeline. I use that as an example only to say the environmental lobby, if that's what you would like to call it, who would be opposing fracking and shale oil and does, is probably has less of a case now in an Obama second term. Now again, you know, it's a political matter. Who knows who's going to get elected in 2016? And that may say a lot about the power of them. That being said, I'm not sure that they are powerful enough to combat what is America's public opinion on this, which is more U.S. domestic production. And I think that wins the day when combating against the NIMBY arguments. What I would add to that is the uh, stories now being told, verified, certified, of really what you could call the islands of prosperity that are growing rapidly across the country among those states which encourage natural resource development and contrast that with the stubborn joblessness with the stubborn uh, slow economic growth in states that are now ending up with surplus budgets I was just in Ohio yesterday John Kasich and his whole governmental team are anticipating, just from the Utica Shale after just a couple of years, a $500 million budget surplus, and it's only at the very beginnings of the Utica Shale. Texas this year has a $2 billion budget surplus in a state that two years ago, at the last assembly, had to cut dramatically, but there's been such a surge in income, royalties to governments, and if we really wanted to solve the deficit problem in this country, neither tax increase nor spending reduction necessarily has to be the answer. If economic growth is driven by energy investment, there could be sufficient growth over time that deals with the entirety of the government, government's uh, financial requirements. If I may add a bit to that uh, and then talk about Egypt. Uh, if there is a big disaster uh, because amateurs uh, would get involved in the fracking process somewhere and there are amateurs out there and the regulations for fracking are state by state, it's not federal and it's a confusing uh, mess of things. Uh, this may slow things down but yes indeed the, the new energy that's being produced could also help us get rid of our debt. That's another thing people aren't talking about. We're talking about multiple trillions of dollars coming out of the ground. Tax that at 10 or 15 percent, and you've got a big part of that debt just disappearing. Uh, with regard to Egypt, uh, uh, Basra and Mosiba, it's a disaster. 
and it'll be more of a disaster. I'm sorry to say, there are lots of storm clouds out there. And this is part of what I call the Arab storm, not the Arab spring. It's not a spring, there are not flowers coming out and the nice cool breeze from the, the Nile River. This is a disaster. Uh, we were in Egypt for six weeks last year. The electricity in the countryside worked for about six to eight hours a day. The electricity system is even weaker now. The lights have already started to go up for considerable time periods during the day, and it's not even summertime yet. Ramadan's going to be in July. The investment in electricity has been insufficient. Maintenance in electricity has been insufficient, and they're running out of fuel for their plants. They shut down the Damianta LNG export facility, and they are now importing gas. This is a stunner. The Egyptian diesel situation could be even more dangerous. Uh, they're running out of diesel, and the crop is due next month. Diesel is needed to take the crops up, to transport the crops, uh, to uh, process the wheat and so forth. Diesel is also used in Egypt to get the water out of the canals and the river to irrigate the crops. Uh, there could be gun battles over diesel. People are hoarding diesel. Why is there a diesel shortage in a country with oil? Because the Egyptian General Petroleum Corporation is not paying its bills. And under the contracts, the companies involved in the production sharing agreements can now export the oil. So Egyptian oil exports from the companies that are part of the production sharing agreements are going up. At the same time, diesel imports are going up. It's a really chaotic situation. Uh, I don't think the leadership has any decent energy people to help them explain this situation to them. Uh, but then another part of it, again, I could talk about this forever, but I'll, I'll just wrap it up on subsidies. The IMF wants Egypt to get rid of, this is not working, I'll just talk, use my marine voice. Uh, the IMF wants Egypt to get rid of its fuel subsidies. The day they get rid of those fuel subsidies, or if they get rid of them too quickly, there will be riots in the streets, even worse than is what has happened now. And the IMF is also asking Egypt to cut back on its food subsidies at the same time. Question, does the IMF ever learn? They did this in 1977 with Egypt, and people died. And this was a calmer time period. One more crack to Egypt. And this place could end up toward the revolution of the poor and hungry. Oh, yep. okay. um, a few more questions. Um, one specifically for um, Mr. Hoffmeister. And the question is, aren't you uh, overstating the role of OPEC in the current oil market price formation? What about future markets and the financial players? This is... Ultimately, the global oil price is set on the basis of the psychology of anticipation. It is not a direct supply-demand relationship. It is an anticipated supply-demand relationship. And in this regard, OPEC is extraordinarily critical and important, and I would still argue it is singularly the primary uh, method by which prices are set. What we see in this high oil price market 
is a disconnect between demand and production that is largely established by the OPEC pricing mechanism. Europe is in deep recession, demand is down. U.S. has gone from 20, 000, 20 million barrels a day in 2007 to 18 and a half million barrels a day and dropping in 2013. While China's demand has increased, global production has also struggled to increase. Keep in mind, OPEC has some 75% or more of the global oil reserves. Yet OPEC's production has been in the 32, 34 million barrel a day range with all of these reserves. OPEC is not producing at the rate it could. Were it to invest more heavily, if their reserve numbers are right, to increase global production according to demand. No, they want to keep it tight. So the, by the world staying tight, and OPEC is the primary reason the world supply remains tight, is to satisfy the price requirements of the sovereign nations whose primary income, national income, is derived by oil. So I would say that OPEC is very much in the driver's seat, and we see it all the time as it plays out when there is limited excess capacity by OPEC, and OPEC nations have deliberately remained at limited spare capacity in the face of all the reserves that they have. Great. Uh, two, I'm going to run these two questions together since these are seem to be uh, empirically based. Uh, how much by the numbers uh, dollars is the U.S. investment in Arab countries uh, as how much the China investment? So someone wants to know how much in terms of U.S. dollar amount does the U.S. invest in Arab countries versus China's uh, investments there. That's the first part of the, of the question. And I think, Paul, you alluded to that earlier during your, your remarks. The second question, what is the value of oil as a percentage which the United States needs for the next foreseeable future? Does anyone want to take the first one? or I can take a shot at it. Okay. Uh, our investments in the Arab world are certainly not as big as they should be, nor are they probably even near. Uh, what some of the Chinese are doing rather quietly. You see, uh, our people like to publish data. Uh, the Chinese like to publish data too. I'll leave it at that. Uh, when it comes to the uh, Middle East investments in the United States, it's usually defined on the uh, statistical books as Middle East investment, not Arab or the rest of the Middle East. 90% of that investment in the United States from the Middle East is from Israel, not from Arabs. There's a huge opening there. There's not really anything broken down by what is Saudi investment that I could find in the time I had. Uh, our investments in China are really not that big. Just to add a little bit more to this, most of our investments overseas are in Europe, the Netherlands, and the UK. We invest more in Australia than we invest in China. There's a good reason for that. Lack of rule of law, intellectual property, and having to deal with massive corruption. We'd rather deal with the Australians, the Dutch, and the British on this situation. IP is a big issue. 
there are huge openings for trade and investment going back and forth between the Arabs and the United States that should be worked on more. Uh, there's huge potential there. 